Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Welcome back to part two of Space Medicine 101. Today we're going to actually talk about the hazards faced by those brave people that leave Earth and go into space. Those things that we are going to cover are ionizing radiation, the effects of microgravity on the human body, the extreme environments of space, namely, you know, the vacuum, the temperature extremes, the dangers of both space entry and then re-entry into Earth or other planetary systems. We're going to talk about the occupational risk factors as well as toxicological risk factors that are inherent to living on a space vehicle or space station or space capsule. We're going to talk about the remoteness of space, how you're not going to be able to just turn around and come back, especially as we go on longer space voyages, and then how resources are also extremely limited in this environment. And then finally, we're going to talk about the human factor, getting in the right mindset, staying psychologically healthy for long periods of time in space, and having enough group cohesion that people can live in tight quarters for a long time and continue to work together optimally as a team. This is a big subject to unpack, and as I said in episode one, we are just scratching the surface of this knowledge. I'm going to bring all these things up, but there are so many more things that I could talk about. Remember, this is just 101. Alright, the first thing that you need to know is that Earth is in absolute paradise. And the more scientists have understood about the environment we have on Earth, the more we've come to realize that Earth is just an absolute gem. By that same token, when I watched One Strange Rock, a documentary about astronauts' perception of Earth after going to space, they all basically came to the same conclusion. Earth is this extremely wonderful interconnected system that is both amazing and fragile and we need to protect it because it is just an absolutely amazing place but what is going on is that we are extremely protected from the extreme environments present just outside of our atmosphere and magnetosphere in some of the sources i read it said that the atmosphere provides about as much protection from ionizing radiation outside that comes from outer space as 10 meters of water. So 30 feet of water is equal to the protection gained by the entire Earth's atmosphere. I've heard a lot of people talk about possibly shielding deep space missions by using water. Wow, it sounds like you would need a lot of water in order to do that. 
On top of that, that doesn't take into account all the particles that are dispersed as a result of Earth's magnetosphere, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Interestingly, and as an aside, a big issue that we'll talk about is maintaining muscle and bone strength while in space. And I got to thinking about that when I thought about the water. Man, we've got all these sea creatures, you know, fish, whales, all kinds of other animals that are essentially in a gravityless state while underwater. You know, because of the buoyancy, you're essentially at kind of mimics zero gravity. And it doesn't seem like those creatures are losing bone and muscle mass. A lot of the a lot of the fitness stuff on the ISS is done with um you know, bands and resistance type stuff and all that kind of training. But I wonder if swimming could be a potential way to maintain those things. Anyway, that is an aside, and bringing an endless pool into space would probably be difficult, much less a wall around a spacecraft that was 30 feet on each side, or or 10 meters on each side, but kind of crazy. Okay, back to the original subject, Earth being an absolute paradise. So we get a lot of protection from ionizing radiation just from the Earth's atmosphere. As you travel up higher and higher, even, say, in just a commercial aircraft, you're going to increase your exposure to ionizing radiation. That risk goes up as you go up into space, into low Earth orbit, and then as you actually get outside of Earth, that risk goes even higher. Basically, the Earth has an iron core. That iron core creates a magnetic field that surrounds our entire planet. That magnetic field is what tells the compass to point toward north. North. That magnetic field, though, more importantly, is what disperses ionizing radiation so that it doesn't hit our planet and doesn't strip our atmosphere. Basically, the sun is, is having coronal mass ejections and solar flares all the time. It's just spewing energy and particles that are ionizing. They're high energy. They have the power to displace electrons from atoms and ionize them. And what happens is our magnetosphere disperses those particles away from Earth such that our atmosphere is preserved and we are protected from that harmful radiation. When you contrast Earth with the planet Venus that's a little closer to the sun and doesn't have a powerful magnetosphere like Earth, what we see is that Venus's atmosphere has been stripped. And it is now this toxic soup of uh, you know, sulfuric and other atomic particles that is very inhospitable. And so Earth really has our magnetosphere, our iron core to thank, from protecting us from the sun. While the sun does spit out all these particles and energy, the sun actually protects us from galactic cosmic radiation. In the universe, there is ionizing radiation flying all around. Basically, when things like supernovas happen, when a star explodes, you spit out a ton of high-energy particles and energy. Black holes, just by their own existence, will spit spit out x-rays and particles and energy. And then other um, space events probably do as well. I'm not a physicist, so I can't talk about this forever, but there's a lot of ionizing radiation out in space. Our sun basically does the same thing for our solar system that Earth's magnetosphere does to us. It displaces a lot of that galactic cosmic radiation and kind of help protect our solar system 
from incidents from from radiation from other solar systems and even from other galaxies. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy how protected we are from ionizing radiation on Earth. On top of that protection, Earth is also a great distance away from the sun for, for a perfect um, climate and atmosphere system. You know, we're right in that sweet spot where we're not too close that it's too hot and not too far that it's too cold. On top of that, we've got both the sun and then these gigantic outer gas planets like Jupiter that can suck asteroids in near them and kind of protect Earth from the constant billiards game of celestial bodies bumping into each other that occurs in our solar system. This is just the the bare minimum of why Earth is such a paradise and why it's such a wonderful place. But what I mean to say is that as soon as we start going away from Earth, even in low Earth orbit, our exposure to radiation in a harmful <laughs> in a very harmful environment increases dramatically. And as we get outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, which by the way, we've never done, we're going to be exposed to potentially much higher doses of radiation from the sun even doses that could cause fatality and, uh, you know, acute radiation sickness. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Okay, that's a little background about the Earth. I probably went on a little too long about that, but it's fascinating, and there's still so much more to say. So let's start with the first subject, which kind of lends itself to that, and that is ionizing radiation in space. Remember that ionizing radiation can be made up of different types of particles and uh, energy. So you can have things like alpha radiation, which is essentially a helium atom. You can have uh, beta radiation, which is essentially electrons. You can have gamma radiation, which is basically very small, uh, inf- like extremely small high energy particles and then there's also other types of radiation too and what essentially happens and and we'll talk more about radiation in subsequent episodes because it's fascinating but that radiation can bump into atoms displace electrons kind of can cause a, a, a transmission of that energy throughout the body and it can end up hurting people in the short term it can cause radiation burns and acute radiation sickness and in the long term it's going to predispose people for cancer In low Earth orbit, our magnetosphere protects us from that. But as soon as we start to try to go to Mars, we are not going to be nearly as protected from things like solar flares and coronal mass ejections that spit out a lot of radiation. And so the idea of how to keep astronauts, or sorry, space voyagers safe outside of Earth's magnetosphere is a challenging topic and one that we're not yet prepared for. Some potential strategies might be having a small area inside the spacecraft where people could sort of hide out when a solar storm occurs, but um, I'd be interested to see how the logistics of that might actually work. On top of the human risks from ionizing radiation, there's also equipment risks. It can certainly fry circuit boards. Um, There's been huge um, 
solar storms that like a hundred years ago on earth knocked out a bunch of telephone lines and interestingly they worked better for or in some cases they were even clearer because of the energy transmitted through them but that um the the energy from ionizing radiation can also destroy technology as well so we've got to be careful from that standpoint while we don't exactly know how to deal with the problem of ionizing radiation space we do know it's a big problem any space voyager from any country is going to have permissible limits of radiation that they can get before they are grounded. There are annual and career limitations for essentially every major space program in the world. In the United States, the lifetime limit is set at 3% of the risk of exposure-induced death from fatal cancers. And depending on your age and some other factors, that can change. But it is something that is diligently monitored for every person that goes to space, and we don't let them go above a certain threshold if possible. The next big category of hazard in outer space is microgravity. And a lot of people think about space as zero gravity. It's really not true. You really can't be anywhere and get zero exposure to gravity because you're really being pulled from something no matter how far away or how small that force is. But essentially when you're in orbit, you are actually exposed to gravity, but you're in free fall. And you're falling so fast and so far that basically you keep falling off the edge of the Earth, and that's what orbit actually is. And when people are in orbit, that is a microgravity state. The first microgravity problem is space motion sickness. This is an extremely common issue with anyone that's ever traveled to space. In fact, the majority of people that go have it, with 10% being of cases being severe. People essentially get nausea, vomiting, they don't want to eat, and they just feel horrible. Think about it like seasickness, but maybe even a little worse. Essentially, the peak is at 24 to 48 hours, and it usually resolves by 96 hours. Using things like promethazine, other anti-nausea and anti-dizziness drugs like meclizine have been helpful. And essentially what's going on is that your your vestibular system, which normally tells you where you are in space and, and allows you to know, say, where your head is, where your arms is, where your legs are, where up is, where down is, that goes away. And when that goes away, a lot of people get very um, disoriented in space and it leads to motion sickness. The next factor in microgravity are other neurovestibular effects. And so, especially after people kind of become accustomed to uh, microgravity and that space motion sickness goes away, they can have some problems when they do actually return to Earth, and it can take some time to recalibrate that vestibular system. And so a loss of coordination and imbalance upon return to Earth is very, very common. In fact, return to Earth is, is kind of a difficult time and, and can be hard to adjust. And for that reason, a lot of people have anticipated that after, say, six months or nine months on a voyage to Mars, it's going to be really difficult for a space crew to land on Mars and then start doing stuff immediately um, because of the difficulties of that and how much space wears you out and, and breaks down the body. Another neurovestibular effect is a visual impairment that a lot of astronauts get. Sometimes this is temporary, but sometimes the, the poor vision can even last 
for years. Um, I've heard that called visual impairment intracranial pressure. I've also heard it called spaceflight associated neuroocular symptoms. So both of those things are just fancy words for vision's not as good after people get back from space. There's multiple neuroophthalmic changes that can occur, including globe flattening and optic disc swelling, but we're not really sure why this actually occurs. The next effect of microgravity is on the cardiovascular system and fluids. Basically, when you get into space, you get a cephalad shift of fluid from your distal extremities to the center of your body. So especially from your legs and probably some from your arms to your chest and head. And what that basically causes is a puffy head, bird leg symptom. You get things like nasal congestion and headache and some other problems with this, and it leads to a diuresis in space. So astronauts get up into space, all their fluid shifts to their, their trunk and head, and they start to pee. They start to pee a lot, and they actually you know, lose a lot of their body fluid as a result of that. Uh, in space, the body functions well with less fluid. Um, because of that, some people have even talked about maybe, you know, diuresing people before they go into space. And along with that, when you do go back into uh, Earth or another planet, what you get when you're re-exposed to gravity is that fluid goes back into your legs, back into your arms, and you get an, ortho an orthostasis. And that orthostasis can be kind of dangerous, you know, it can cause blackouts. It would be really dangerous for a person who was trying to set up a base on Mars if they couldn't stand up after re-entering the atmosphere. And so one proposed uh, thing to help with that would just be hydrating people up just before re-entry. You know, give them a couple liters of fluid so that they've got, kind of fill their tank up so they don't have as big of problems with that when they get in. Um, that's kind of a double-edged sword, though, because there's some anemia that goes along with space, and so that could potentially cause a little bit of dilutional anemia, but I still think some fluids would be a good call. Uh, in space, we do see a decrease in maximal cardiac output. That makes a lot of sense to me because if you have less fluid, you're going to have less preload. And with less preload, your cardiac output is going to be reduced. And so a lot of those cardiac cardiovascular effects, once you know kind of the basic um, fundamentals of what happens, are pretty intuitive. The next problem with microgravity is related to the musculoskeletal system. And no surprise, when the bones and the muscles don't have to work against gravity, they atrophy, particularly loading bones and loading muscles like the spine and calves. Everyone who has spent time in space ends up experiencing reduced strength, and everyone ends up with bone demineralization. Usually people lose about 1% to 2% of their bone mass per month in space, which if you think about you know over the course of a year or two, could be extremely debilitated, debilitating. Along with that, you can get a hypercalciuria and an increased risk of kidney stones with that. And I think at least one astronaut has had a kidney stone. God, I was wondering about maybe some hydrochlorothiazide up there. Uh, just another thought. Um, in space, people actually get taller. Their spine isn't under so much compression, so it lengthens out. The spine is also less stable, though, as a result of that. And, and anyone who's traveled to space or spent time in space is at increased risk for disc herniation and spine and back problems as a result of that. And that's actually been pretty well studied and interesting. The best way to combat the MSK weakness is with rigorous exercise. And in fact, uh, people who are on the International Space Station tend to spend about 
two to two and a half hours, six days a week doing exercise. There's a lot of uh, machines and treadmills that try to approximate kind of 1G forces using pulleys and, and um, resistance training. And so I've seen people do like kind of deadlift activities, running on a treadmill that's anchored down with some uh, like bungees and stuff. Um, that's kind of why earlier I brought up, you know, like what about swimming? Would swimming be helpful? Kind of interesting. I love to think about space. Those are kind of the big problems related to microgravity. There are probably many, many more, but those are the big ones. And those are the neurovestibular effects, like we talked about space motion sickness, ocular impairment upon re-entry to Earth, which I'm not sure is from the microgravity, but it's from something. And then the coordination and imbalance, which people experience when they re-enter to Earth. The cardiovascular effects, namely fluid shifts to the heart or to the chest and head. People diuresis fluid and operate with a low total fluid volume in space. And then when they get back to Earth or another planet, they become orthostatic under gravity influence. Uh, and then the musculoskeletal stuff, which which most people know that, that the muscles and the, the skeletal system do atrophy in space. I think that was some of the earliest recognized phenomenon that occurs. Another thing that happens in space are hematological changes. I think this is probably multifactorial, maybe partially due to radiation, maybe partially due to microgravity. I don't think it's totally well known like most things in space. But in, in space, you do get a reduced lymphocyte count, which can sometimes uh, or potentially cause slow wound healing and virus reactivation. I think the most logical thing to me seems like the increased exposure to ionizing radiation. We know that lymphocytes and, and like the GI tract are some of the cells that are most quickly affected, and so that seems like there could be a connection there, but people could talk way more intelligently about that than me. Another thing that occurs is a spaceflight anemia that everyone tends to get. Uh, I mentioned earlier that it, with you could get some additional dilutional anemia anemia if you tried to rehydrate someone upon re-entry. Still probably the right call, but do realize that the circulating red blood cell count does decrease in space. The next major hazard class to space voyagers is what I'm going to call environment, but more specifically I'm talking about pressure and temperature in space. Basically, this becomes a big issue when people start leaving spaceships in spacesuits to do activities that we call extravehicular activities. So sometimes astronauts have to go outside to fix the spacecraft, to fix a satellite, do other type of work, and to do that they put on a spacesuit. And that basically is that big white suit that a lot of us are familiar with, and it's meant to protect them. But it's a very challenging activity because that spacesuit is big and bulky. It's hard to move in. And so in order to go outside safely and allow astronauts to be able to move, the pressure inside the spacesuit is actually less than the pressure inside the spaceship generally. And because of that, there is some risk of decompression sickness upon coming back into the, sh the ship. Keep in mind that space is also essentially a vacuum, so if there's any compromise in that suit, you're going to basically lose all the pressure and that's going to be a catastrophic event that would, that would essentially kill someone, especially if it was rapid or um, complete. But 
Oftentimes, in order to prepare for that, astronauts are going to be breathing um, high oxygen gas before they go out to try and decrease the risk of decompression sickness that might be with like 100% oxygen gas or something. And then they might have a slow uh, reintroduction into the full pressure of the spaceship after coming back from an extravehicular activity. So pressure is a big deal and space is a vacuum and anytime you're around vacuums and pressure differences bad things can happen to humans including decompression sickness, gas embolisms, and a whole bag of other things that eventually we'll talk about in extreme detail on another podcast. The next part of that environment factor is the temperature and the temperatures in space are extreme. A lot of people probably aren't familiar with the Kelvin system, but the Kelvin system is basically the um, SI unit for temperature in science. And basically it's a great scale because in Kelvin, zero is like absolute zero. That's basically when molecules stop moving and it's not really possible, at least as far as we know, to get any colder than that. And so the temperature in interstellar space, that means in areas that are like, at, you know, outside of the solar system between stars is going to be very cold and thought to be about three, three degrees Kelvin. So just absolutely freezing out there. To put the Kelvin temperature scale in some perspective, one degree change in Kelvin is in fact equal to a one degree change in Celsius, which is about 1.8 degree change, or is 1.8 degree change in Fahrenheit. And in the Kelvin scale, 273 degrees is equal to zero degrees Celsius. So at 273 Kelvin, you are fr like water is freezing. And then of course at 373 degree Kelvin, water is boiling. And so that kind of makes you think, wow, three degrees Kelvin is freezing. As far as the temperature in low Earth, Earth orbit goes, it really depends on whether or not you're in the sun or the shade. We have the sun really close to us on Earth and it, it warms things up really nicely, but when you don't have the atmosphere to kind of buffer that warmth in the, the climate system, things basically are either going to get extremely hot or extremely cold, such that when you're in the sun in space, the temperature could be as high as 120 degrees Celsius or 248 degrees Fahrenheit, so well above the boiling water temperature. Contrast that to the shade where you can have temperatures of minus 100 degrees Celsius or minus 148 degrees Fahrenheit, which is just absolutely freezing. And so these spacesuits that, that uh, space voyagers have to use have to protect from these extremes of temperature, which could be very different on one side of the suit based on the other, uh, just from the sun and the shade. And I've heard astronauts talking about how their hands, like their fingers, would, would start to feel like they're freezing or, or burning or something. And I just think about having to do that workout and, you know, fixing the spaceship and having your hands and your body be under those extremes of temperature for hours and hours sometimes and think, Holy cow, that sounds like some really tricky work. Pew! Alright, the next major class of hazard for space voyagers is what I'm going to call entry and re-entry. Basically, at this point in time, even to get to low Earth orbit, but of course to get beyond that too, we utilize rockets. Rockets are essentially ballistic missiles. They were developed during World War II as war machines, and then we kind of converted those war machines into 
these vehicles that we could use to actually leave the gravity well of Earth. The problem is, is that ballistic missiles are dangerous. They can explode. If everything is not perfect and calibrated correctly, things can go boom. Rocket ships exploding is a very common part of R&D and anytime someone's developing a new rocket engine or a new rocket platform or system, it usually takes a lot of explosions to get things where they need to be. But even for fully completed rockets, you still have a risk of explosion. There have been a number of rockets with expensive satellites and other things that have ended up exploding. And there have been at least one tragic case that I know of with the, tra the Challenger space shuttle exploding, killing six astronauts. And so the risk of explosion during takeoff is a real risk and one that is really scary as somebody going into space. On top of that, you're exposed to uh, you know, increased G-forces just to um, create the force needed to leave Earth's atmosphere. And so you're going to be at, at increased risk uh, because of those forces. On top of that, there is noise, vibration, and other hazards related to um, both leaving a, a gravity system like Earth as, as well as re-entering. And so there's a lot of risks related to G-forces, explosions, crashes, trauma, vibration, etc. And so entry, re-entry is a dangerous thing and one that I could talk a lot more about, but I'm going to keep moving to keep this episode going. The next group of risks are what I kind of call occupational and toxicological risks, and those are mostly related to the environment of being in a confined spacecraft. You can imagine on the International Space Station, they're going to be needing to, you know, clean and recirculate the water, as well as the air, as well as other things that are important. And if any of those things aren't perfect, you can run into problems. A good example of this is getting rid of CO2. Obviously, when humans breathe out, they exhale CO2. And if you don't scrub that CO2, it's going to start to rise in your atmosphere, and you're going to start to have problems from that, things like headache and even confusion at higher amounts. And so on the International Space Station, they have kind of serially lowered the acceptable limit uh, for carbon dioxide for that reason, because they've noticed that for each small increment increase in carbon dioxide, there's like a doubling risk of headaches. And so that's something really important. There's been toxic leaks of things like ammonia, and other, uh, you know, engine propellants and other chemicals used uh, in the manufacturing of space stuff and equipment. And so there's all these risks related to just the environment of being in this closed capsule and all these systems needed to recyclate all the materials used. And those things cannot be understated and need to be thought about constantly in order to keep our space voyagers safe. The next big group of problems are really just related to the remoteness of space. When people are on the International Space Station in low Earth orbit, they don't have many resources, and they're pretty far away, and so getting to a hospital or something is going to be fairly difficult. Now, that being said, there's usually like a Dragon capsule or a Russian capsule up there that that a space voyager could usually jump in and be back to Earth in a couple hours if needed, which is pretty amazing. Now, the moon, this could take days. 
for Mars, this could take years at, at, with our current technology. And so you are going to be extremely isolated out in space the further we go away. Getting back is going to be very difficult. And that is going to lend itself to needing to have all the equipment you need with you. And if things are, if problems occur, you may not have what you need to take care of it. And it may be a long time before you can get back. So just the remoteness and the low resource setting of space can be very dangerous. A lot of time is spent in putting together medical kits for like the International Space Station and other space missions. Uh, like, for instance, they oftentimes have an ultrasound, or do have an ultrasound machine on the International Space Station, but there's no other radiological equipment. They do have medicine kits with lots of different medicines, but that's probably not going to be as robust as, like, a big hospital pharmacy or something. You may have some capability to do procedures and things like that, but you're not going to have a full operating room with a full suite of operating tools, and you're probably not going to have the surgeon that is very versed at that particular operation at the time you need it. And so people really have to step up in space. You need engineers that can do a lot of things. You need doctors that are broadly training can do a lot of things. People have to be more jack-of-all-trades in that environment because you've got a limited crew size, you've got limited resources, and you need creative people that can get things done with less. Very important. If you're that person, think about being an astronaut. The final factor that I want to talk about for dangers for space voyagers, astronauts, cosmonauts, etc., is what I call the human factor. And any activity for which humans are involved in should always include the human factor as a possible detriment. That can mean different things from different people, but what I'm talking about here is kind of a batch of different things. The first thing is that space is isolating and very different from Earth. A lot of space people are going to be away from their friends and their family. That's going to make them sad. They're going to be away from the beautiful nature of Earth and all the creature comforts that come along with Earth. I mean, even though the International Space Station is big, you're still tra traveling through these kind of tight cylinders. And it's certainly not a big open uh, floor plan like you might see in a, in a nice home or, or a nice building or something. And so the creature comforts are not going to be as good as on Earth. You're going to be away from other people that you love. It's going to be isolating. It could potentially be sad for a lot of people. Taking that even a step further, you have to remember that in space, you don't have the normal circadian rhythms of sunrise and sunset that people are used to dealing with on Earth. So even something like sleep can become a much bigger problem for people. It can be harder to get into the right cycle and get good sleep. And so that also can contribute to just being in this strange environment and having that get you down, especially after you've been there for a fair amount of time. That's sort of looking at the problems for an individual person, but then you can take that human factor even a step deeper and think about, well, okay, we've got one person, but what happens when we take six people and we shoot them off in a small capsule to Mars and tell them they're going to have to stay there for two years before they can come back on a total three to four year mission? 
Well, you've got a situation where you need that cohesion between your people to be good for that entire time because there's going to be tasks throughout a lot of those four, three or four years. You're going to want people to be working together optimally in teams and getting the stuff done. And so having the right group, the right group cohesion is so important. And so when we select our first teams to go on deep space missions, this has got to be a huge part of it because the right group dynamics is so important. And this stuff is hard to test. It's like, oh man, these two people love each other. Oh, but when we put them in a 20 by 20 foot space cap, 20 by 20 by 20 foot space capsule, and they were with each other all the time for nine months, maybe things didn't go as well as when they were able to go home at night and hang out with their families. So that is something that is probably going to plague a lot of our long deep space missions because humans are unpredictable and they change and even when we select the basically best possible people we can I think we're gonna run into some problems okay guys that was space medicine 101 we talked a little bit about what space actually is why space exploration and the field of space medicine are absolutely exploding right now no pun intended and then we talked about many of the hazards faced by those who actually travel to space and I want to quickly recap those right now so remember there is ionizing radiation and ionizing radiation both comes from sort of galactic cosmic radiation which is outside our solar system from things like supernovas it comes from inside our solar system from things like the sun and coronal mass ejections and as you get away from earth's atmosphere and magnetosphere you're exposed to more ionizing radiation and that can cause things like radiation burns acute radiation sickness which can be fatal at high enough doses and then also just increasing the risk of cancer throughout the rest of life that is something we have no idea how to solve and maybe one of the bigger issues about long-term extended duration deep space exploration. The next big factor is microgravity. When humans are not exposed to gravity it can cause a number of problems in different systems. Some of the major issues are with the vestibular system. People lose their orientation in space without gravity and that can cause some motion sickness. On top of that people can have cardiovascular and fluid changes as the fluid tends to shift toward the head and the chest and, and, and trunk as a result of being in microgravity and the final thing being bone and skeletal and muscular health basically astronauts can lose one to two percent of their bone mass every month in some cases even more and muscles begin to atrophy this can cause a lot of problems for space voyagers when they come back into a gravity environment like Earth. The next big problem about space is the environment and namely I'm talking about the lack of pressure so it's a vacuum and the extremes of temperature and those can be very dangerous to astronauts particularly when they have to leave the space shuttle for extravehicular activities the next major group the next major group of hazards are related to entry and re-entry basically when you strap somebody to a missile and shoot them off into space there's a lot of things that can go wrong and it could potentially explode so that's something to worry about as well when you're actually living on the space station or another space 
um, apparatus, you're going to be exposed to occupational and toxicological problems as a result of the systems required to keep the air, water, and other essential parts of the, the space station and human living conditions acceptable. The next group of problems are related to the remoteness and the low resources. It can be hard to get back from outer space and you can oftentimes not have everything you need to do things the way you would do on Earth and that makes it more risky. And the final thing of course is the human factor. Space is isolating. It can affect people's sleep, their mental health. When people have to work together in groups that can be difficult especially when they're forced together forced to work together constantly over extended uh, mission durations and so the human factor can never be understated and needs to be thought about diligently all right i hope that was a good introduction to space medicine I talked a little bit about stuff in broad strokes, but there is so much more to say about space medicine, about the hazards faced by people in space. I want to once again say that our knowledge of medicine in general, but especially space physiology and space medicine, is absolutely primitive. We've only been sending people to space for 60 years. Less than 600 total people have gone to space, and we really don't know how to keep people safe in low Earth orbit, much less on deep space missions outside of Earth's magnetosphere. And so we're probably going to have to crack a couple eggs to make this omelet. People are probably going to die as a result of us pushing the limits in space. But I think we need to keep going as a species. I think it's the right thing to do. And if you are a medical person or anyone else interested in space, there has never been a better time to jump on board. It's no longer something that only a select few people can be doing, you know, in NASA and and uh, the military it's now starting to open up to the private sector and there are just so many opportunities so jump on board I expect that in the next 20 30 40 50 years this is going to be the number one sector of the economy Pew! thank you so much for listening to the full scope podcast and investing in your health I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye.